a squirt? Yes. Oh, annoying one. You know Gilroy Lockhart from Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets? Do I know? What kind of idiotic question is that? Everyone knows that by now. All right, gee, she was just cursing. Well, remember how in the movie, during the dueling class, he swaggers up to the stage and is all like, Can everyone see me? Can everyone hear me? Mm-hmm. Well, when you think about it, we're all Gilroy Lockhart these days. Every time you start a Zoom meeting, you're like, Can everyone see me? Can everyone hear me? Can you see my PowerPoint presentation? I'm going to try to share my slide. It's wild how the world has adapted. Wow. How illuminating, oh wondrous one. It's clear seven years of higher education has not been wasted on you. Hey now, that... Yeah, that's... that's fair. Welcome back, you legends, to Legendary Africa, your African myth, legend, and lore podcast. Before I get into today's episode, I just wanted to say a huge thank you to everyone who continued to listen to Legendary Africa while we were on hiatus. I was so touched and grateful to see the numbers slowly tick up over the months, and I'm so excited to share that we are currently sitting at over 7,800 listens for my little pod. It's also so amazing that there are people from all parts and corners of the world listening, from Canada, the UK, and America to India, Australia, South Korea, and Cameroon. We have listeners from 73 countries on six continents of the world. I'm still working on the penguins in Antarctica to add the seventh continent, so if anyone knows some mutt-loving penguins or new scientists based there who like mutts, send in the legendary Africa link. Just a really big thank you to those who listened, are listening, and any new listeners, welcome. Legendary Africa is a bit of a weird, wild, odd ride, but... I hope you enjoy it all the same. We're returning from hiatus with two folktales from the Congo, all centered around wives, in case the title didn't give that away. Our first story involves two brothers, one wealthy and prosperous, the other mistreated and alone, several decapitated fish, and of course, one rather odd wife. Many, many moons ago, there lived two brothers called Bait and Swami. Maswami was rich, married, and had dozens of servants waiting on him hand and foot, all day and all night. Bait, on the other hand, was not married, was poor, and didn't have any servants. So, every day and night, he gathered palm kernels as his breakfast, lunch, and supper. It was a sad existence, indeed. On top of that, Swami treated Bait worse than the stray dogs he'd kick as he walked through the village. Despite his brother's obvious poverty, he would never share a meal with him, nor offer to let him stay with him. He would openly feast and celebrate with his own family without ever inviting his brother. This drove Bait into the deepest of despair, and he knew that he had to leave his brother and their village, or he would not last long. And so, without a word to his brother or anyone else, without a backward glance, Bait left with only a small sleeping mat and a small sack of palm kernels. 
He walked and he walked and he walked and then he walked some more until he found himself in a valley. The valley was full with greenery, palms, tall trees with lush leaves and rushes. Here he stopped and said softly to himself, Here I shall stay. Here I shall live. And with these words, Bate gathered some wood, some grass and other materials and constructed a simple hut. Then he lay down his woven mat and made a small fire for warmth. He had roasted palm kernels that night. But while he was sleeping, a most peculiar dream came to bait. He dreamt of a beautiful woman, with sparkling caramel eyes and rich dark skin. She called him by his name and beckoned him closer. He rubbed the sleep out of his eyes and rose to follow her. She led him deep into the nearby forest until they came to a river. Here she told him to tap the ground three times. He did so, and a boat appeared. She then said to tap the boat three times. He did so, and paddles appeared. Bate was shocked, but he was completely astounded when she then continued to say that she was to be his wife and brought with her nine servants. He must go every day and summon the boat so that he may go fish and bring back food for her and their household. All would be well, she said, as long as he removed the heads of the fish before he brought them to her. Then, as Bait followed her back to his hut, she began to flicker and fade, and before he could shout out to her, he woke up. Bait did not go back to sleep that night. The next morning, he rose, his mind still bitter from his dream. How the gods enjoyed tormenting him. He started walking, and before he realized it, he found himself by the river in the forest. With a deep skull, Bait knocked the ground three times with his foot. Nothing happened. Of course nothing happened. Then, just as he began to turn away, a great noise behind him made him look back, and to his great surprise, he saw the boat had appeared. He clutched his chest in shock. Another three knocks. And the paddles appeared. He couldn't believe it. With shaking limbs, he climbed into the boat and paddled into the river. He caught a great number of large fish, and, remembering the words of the beautiful woman from his dream, he cut off each of the heads and returned to his hut. But his hut had vanished. In its place was a large, magnificent house with beautifully carved furniture and several adjoining quarters. In front of the house stood the woman from his dream, her tight curls cascading down her back and her nine servants who were mostly young, strong boys. Bates stood stunned, the basket of fish dangling limply from his fingers as he stared at the wonder in front of him. The woman approached him with a soft smile and taking the basket from his hands, passed it to one of the servants. She took his hands in hers. Dear husband, she began, and Bade almost choked with surprise, prompting her to laugh softly. Dear husband, she repeated, welcome home. And with these words, she kissed him softly and drew him into their house. Wedding arrangements were made, and many came to witness this wondrous union. And although many were confused and surprised by the sudden appearance of this woman in their land, the people rejoiced, for she was kind and generous. For many sunrises, Bate was happy and content. Every day, 
He went out and fished, cut off the heads and brought it back for his wife. She would cook them a delicious meal, while their nine servants, who had become more like their children, ran around the house, half playing, half cleaning. They would talk well into the night until the candles burned down. He would tell her about his home and his troubled childhood, and she would comfort him gently. She would tell him stories of magic and wonder, while he sat entranced by her musical voice and curious tales. The one thing Bate did not find out until much later was his wife's name. Strange, you may think, but she refused to tell him until six months into their marriage. While they lay together in the early hours of the morning, she finally gave him her name. Baraka, she whispered, and Bate knew that she had placed her trust in him completely. A year passed, then another. Bate would go fishing, taking one of the younger boys with him to help carry the headless fish back. Many people came to their magnificent home and marveled at the warm and rich welcome they were given by Bate and Baraka. Eventually, news of his brother's riches and luxurious living found its way back to Swami, who flew into a jealous rage. He soon began plotting to find his brother and discover the secret to his sudden wealth. One day, as Bate was drawing his boat in after another successful fishing trip with two of his boys, his brother Swami came casually strolling up to him. Bate was so shocked he fell backwards into his own boat. Swami burst out laughing, his head thrown back. Bate scowled and angrily shot up, pointing an accusing finger at his older brother. You! What are you doing here? he shouted furiously. But Swami held up his hands in a gesture of peace. A fond smile on his face as he stared at his brother. Now, now, my dear brother, forgive my insolence. I have simply come to congratulate you on your great fortune, he said, giving his brother a wide smile. Bate narrowed his eyes at Swami, but was taken back by the affectionate gaze his brother returned. It's true, Swami said, sighing out heavily. I treated you badly, my brother, and I had no right to. Our mother saw us. He broke off, eyes glistening. Bate was truly taken aback at his brother's change of heart, and felt a glimmer of hope settle on his own. Swami cleared his throat and smiled nervously. <clears throat> I was hoping to try again, if you'd accept me, to be the brother you deserve. I know I don't deserve it, but if you can find it in your heart, I... But Bate didn't wait to hear the rest as he embraced his brother tightly, eyes warm from the strained tears of joy. You, you have no idea how long I've waited for you to call me brother with a smile on your face, Bate said, clapping his hands on Swami's back happily. I will happily have you here as an honored guest. My, my wife would love to meet you. Come, let's gather the fish, Bate babbled on in his excitement. So excited was he, that he missed the odd expression that flitted over his brother's face. Swami quickly plastered a smile onto his face. Of course, I would love to meet her, he exclaimed, and began throwing the fish into the baskets. But his brother quickly stopped him. Oh, wait a bit. We have to first cut off the heads before we take them back to Baraka, Bate explained, taking up an axe and chopping off the first head. Swami frowned in confusion. <laughs> Chop off the heads? But why? he asked. Bate hesitated. Well, Baraka insists I do so before bringing them back to her to cook, 
he explained, feeling suddenly embarrassed. Swami laughed, clapping his hand on his brother's back. <laughs> but why? What reason does she give you? He asked, his eyes twinkling with amusement. Fate felt suddenly annoyed. Swami was mocking him. She, she didn't give one, she just insisted. So, you just obey your wife without question, eh? Swami said, cutting him off with a smirk. I didn't realize that your marriage was one of those, brother. <laughs> he added with another loud laugh. Fate gritted his teeth. I don't know what you mean, brother. It is just to do this. But Swami wouldn't listen. No, 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 no. I can't believe my brother has been turned into some meek little man who listens to every single thing his wife demands. Surely you're not so weak and spineless, he said in great shock. Fate felt his face grow hot. No, I'm not. That's not what this is about at all, he said, running a hand through his hair in frustration. Well, then are you not the man of the house? Swami asked, accusingly. Fate shot up straight as a rod. Enough was enough. You know nothing, brother. I will show you. We will take these fish as is, and Barack will be fine with it because I say she will. Just you see. He shouted out, throwing the remaining fish in and striding off. But the two young boys ran after him, their faces filled with dread, as they tried to shout after him. Father, no! Mother does not like the fish like that! Please! But Bates shouted out in a thunderous voice, and they fell silent in terror. Behind them, walking slowly, Swami followed, a small grin slowly spreading across his face. For Swami knew the story of the mysterious woman and the fish. He had arrived some days ago, and spent the time questioning nearby villages until he found out what had happened to cause his brother's sudden wealth. Baraka, I have a surprise for you, Fate shouted out as he strode up to the house. Baraka stepped out in a beautiful blue dress, her hands slightly white from making bread. She smiled and opened her mouth to welcome her husband home, but stopped short when her eyes fell upon the basket of fish, their heads still intact and present. Her face fell. Bate felt shock run through his body like a lightning strike as he watched his wife's face grow dark. I trusted you, she said, her voice soft, yet her words seemed to reverberate through his entire being. I gave you a house, children, a home to call your own, and I gave you my love, she hissed out, making him flinch back as if she had struck him. And all I asked was for one simple thing. Faith's mouth opened and closed, gaping like the dead fish in his basket. His wife gazed sadly at him. Goodbye, husband, she said, and before Faith could utter a word, she snapped her fingers, and the house disappeared, then the children, one by one, even the one hanging tearfully onto his pants, and then lastly, Baraka beautiful, loving wife, disappeared, a single tear falling to the ground on the spot where she had stood but a second ago. The dust settled. All that was his, now gone. Fate fell to his knees, his basket rolling uselessly away from him, and clutched his head in his hands, sobs escaping him. Somi felt the sharp stab of regret shoot through him as he stared at his broken brother but then shook his head once as if ridding himself of the emotion. Turning on his heel, Swami quickly walked away, 
his shoe clipping a stray palm kernel as he left his brother to mourn into the dirt. And somewhere far away beneath the sea, a woman with caramel eyes and tight dark curls echoed his cries with her own. the story was sad to begin with and then I went and made it even sadder. <laughs> Why am I like this? I apologize. So I changed and added a couple of things here. Aside from expanding a lot of the um a lot of the descriptive parts of the folktale, I also gave our leading lady from the ocean a name, Baraka, which means blessing in Swahili, which is one of the national languages of um the Democratic Republic of Congo. And I chose that name because she was a blessing to bait. I also gave her an actual speaking voice, since in the original story she's a silent creature, and, well, it just sucks and it's boring. I also added the bit about Baraka and, um, needing time to trust Bade because, well, because I could, that's why, okay. And then the last major thing I changed was I made Swami more of a villain than he was in the original story. In the original tale, Swami essentially dropped out of the story until the end, where he shows up as Bade loses everything. Um, in the original story, Bade deliberately leaves the fish heads on several times and has to run after his servants to cut them off after changing his mind at the last minute. And finally, one of his servants is just too quick and he's unable to catch up before the servant brings the very much not decapitated fish to Bade's wife, who promptly disappears. Um, which is just very sad on Bade, so I guess I felt bad and put the blame on Swami, turning it into an evil brother, good brother situation like Mufasa and Scar, or Thor and Loki, or Tweedledee and Tweedledum. Okay, wait, not the last one, but you know what I mean. Our next story involves three wives and one man who dies and then comes back. No, this is not The Walking Dead. Or is it? Once upon a time, there was a town filled with different kinds of people doing different kinds of things, all bustling about like busy bees. In one particular house, which is situated in one particular part of this town, was a particular man named Nen Petro. Now, Nen Petro was your regular kind of guy who looked very regular and who did fairly regular things. He didn't like things too much, nor did he dislike things too much. He was, well, fairly regular. His three wives, on the other hand, were anything but regular. But no one knew that until one particular irregular thing happened to Nen Petro. Now, as Ninpetro was a regular kind of guy, he did what regular guys in his town normally do. He would go hunting. Now, in this, Ninpetro was not regular. In this, Ninpetro excelled. Didn't mean he loved hunting, because, as you remember, Ninpetro didn't like things too much. But because he was so good at hunting, Ninpetro would often bring back beautiful game for his wives to cook and eat. His wives got so used to his excellent hunting, but soon they began to develop enormous appetites. Then Petro went hunting and brought back a large antelope. His three wives cooked it and all ate. 
but soon they told him that they were hungry again. And so Ninpetro went out hunting once more. This time he brought back a monkey and thought, Ah, I'm sure this will interest my beautiful wives. And he was right. They were indeed fascinated and cooked and ate the monkey. But again, they complained that they were hungry. And so Ninpetro went out once more to hunt. This time he stalked an ox. Surely a great big ox will satisfy his wife's hunger. Now an ox was an ambitious target for any good hunter, and it was usually recommended that it be hunted by a group. But Nimpetra was in a hurry, his wives were hungry, and he did like to please them. So there he was alone, and eyeing a gigantic ox. He was feeding with three more of its kind, its large jaw rotating slowly as it ground grass between its huge chompers. Stalking carefully and cautiously, Ninpetro got close enough and shot it square between the eyes. Unfortunately, instead of running off in fright as expected, the other two oxen turned towards him and charged. He furiously tried to reload his gun, but before he could lift it, the oxen tore into him, killing him instantly where he stood. That should have been the end of our story, but as I said before, Ninpetro's wives were anything but regular. The first wife was called Ndozantu, the second, Songanzila, and the third, Fula Fula. Until now, no one would have said these three were anything but regular, devoted wives. But now, with Nimpetro gone, and no way of surviving without him, it is up to the three women to find their husband. One evening, Ndozantu had a dream. She dreamt of their husband. He was crouching in the grass, his gun at ready as he eyed a giant ox. He aimed and shot with great accuracy, felling the beast in one blow. But Ndozantu spied another ox as it began to charge her husband. She shouted out to him, but her words did not sound, and she watched helpless as her husband fell to the ground and quickly died. Waking with a start, Ndozantu ran to find the other wives and explained what she saw. As soon as Sunganzila heard the story, an image of where their husband travelled to appeared in her mind's eye. Motioning to the other wives, she said, Come with me. I know where to find Ninpetro. And so they prepared for their journey and soon set off. It was not an easy path, over hills and through valleys, across rivers and through forests. The three women walked and walked, but they often leaned on each other and passed words of encouragement along until finally they arrived, tired and hungry, at the place where their husband was killed. Seeing Ninpetro lying there in the grass, his wounds still fresh, sent the woman into a foot of wailing, their cries echoing into the night. But soon the third wife, Fuller Fuller, pulled herself upright and took a deep breath. Do not fret, sisters. I will bring our husband back. And with these words, she disappeared into the nearby forest, collecting herbs and precious plants. Upon returning, she brought out a basin, 
and using a solid wooden handle, mashed a selection of herbs and plants into a paste, using water to mix it. Then, slowly and carefully, she smeared the paste onto Nenpetro's wounds, before taking a small bottle from her bag and poured the liquid down his throat. One minute, and then another passed. And then, with a sudden gasp, Nenpetro shot straight up. His wounds closed before their eyes, and life returned to his body. They all celebrated and sang out with joy. But as Nenpetro went to a nearby stream to clean his body of the blood and met him, the three women glanced at each other. And it suddenly struck them that, now that Nenpetro was back, they would likely go back to fighting over him and squabbling over whose shimbek he would go to first. Sadness flickered over their faces before they all hastily wiped it away. I should be first, said Nozanto, since I had dreamt about him. Without me, you would never have known. But Sankansila shook her head. No, I should be the one, as without me, we would never have found him. But Fuller Fuller crossed her arms over her chest. Don't forget that I brought him back, she said. But instead of fighting, let's each cook some food in these pots and present it to him. Whichever pot Ninpetra eats from, first, shall be the winner. Fulla continued, and so the wives went off to find something to cook. Ndazanto and Songansiria quickly hunted some fowl who were slow to escape and thus easy prey. But Fulla wanted something special, and spent a much longer time tracking and eventually hunting a pig. Each woman cooked their food until the entire area was full with delicious scents, and then Petra came running back eagerly, his stomach growling. They asked him to choose the part he wanted, and then Petro paused as he contemplated the choice in front of him. <sighs> Let me think. I could not eat when you dreamt of me, Ndozantu, and I could not eat when you found me, Sangansira, but I can eat now that you return me to the living, Fuller Fuller, and so I will eat your meal first. And with those words, he ate the cooked pig. But although Fuller Fuller won, she did not celebrate, for she saw how downcast her fellow wives were. They also saw how conflicted Fula Fula was. And so, by the time they had returned, all three wives were scolding Ninpetra for his choice, as he should have simply mixed all three pots together in one and eaten it. And this greatly confused poor Ninpetra, and it confused the rest of the town when he told them, for they all agreed he made the logical choice. But they forgot that Ninpetra's wives were anything but regular women. And while poor, confused Ninpetro went back to hunting, Ndozanto, Songansila, and Fula Fula laughed and talked and did their work together, closer now than they ever were before. There we go, that's much better. Much happier, a bit weird, but a happy ending for even poor, confused, undead Nenpetro. As with the previous story, I added and embellished a bit here and there. I created the introduction bit with Nenpetro's characterization, just to add a bit of fun to it. I also added the camaraderie and teamwork element to the relationship between the three wives, especially the part where Fuller Fuller felt upset to have won, and Nozantu and Songansila tried to be happy for her. Them being upset about Nenpetra's choice and insisting that he should have mixed the pots is from the source story. 
but I made that care for each other the reason for their dismay, and added an ending where all three women became closer than ever. I thought it would be a nice way to end the story, with the women working together rather than against each other. These two wife-centric tales are sourced from notes on the folklore of the uh, fjord, I'm not sure if that's how you pronounce it, apologies, uh, by Richard Edward Dennett, and this was written in um, 1898. Today's podcast recommendation is the wonderfully fun and incredibly informative Bewilderbeast podcast by the fantastic Melissa McHugh McGrath. I recently got into this podcast thanks to a recommendation from a good friend of mine and have since become obsessed. I'm telling you, I kid you not. I literally binge watched, I binged, <laughs> I literally binge listened to like 12 episodes the other day and it has become part of my daily rota of podcasts. But all the beast is all about, as Melissa puts it, where animals intersect at humanity. And there are some seriously interesting stories on this podcast. For example, one of my favorites is episode 60, Chicks in Space, which revolves around the time KFC teamed up with NASA and an eighth grader with the God of Science. I don't want to spoil anything, but trust me when I say it's packed with humor, fantastic information, and some really uplifting stuff. Just listen to her when she tells you to grab a snack. <laughs> she ain't kidding. I didn't, and I regretted it severely. And now I must love and leave you. Legendary Africa is produced and edited by the incredible K9 and Co, headed by Hestia the Dao and Athena the Doggo, and hosted by me, Shira Papa. Legendary Africa belongs to the fantastic Straight Up Strange network, so be sure to check out the Straight Up Strange website in the show notes. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave a review on Apple, Spotify, Podchaser, or wherever you can. And remember to follow us on Twitter and Instagram, the Legendary Pod One and Legendary Pod. Until next time, stay safe, stay sexy, and stay legendary. Bye! still here are you you do know the episode is done right it's over you can exit the episode and move on to one of those useful podcasts like how to become a millionaire overnight or how to get a partner in seven days or even better how to get a millionaire partner in seven days and then get all their money off the divorce really the possibility is endless go on then just press the back button that'll take you out of this podcast go on i'm right there with you i believe in you just just press it Seriously, just just go now. I love you. Believe in yourself. You got this. This podcast is a part of Straight Up Strange Productions. Discover more shows like this one at straightupstrange.com.